Welcome to No Challenges Remaining. I am Ben Rothenberg, joined by my dear friend, Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. G'day, Ben. And we are also joined by Sally Bradfield, a longtime tennis communications official and the author of a new book, Not Quite 30 Love. Sally, thank you for being on here. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm thrilled. So your book, let me just read the blurb, because I think it's a good blurb. It's a novel you wrote, semi-autobiographical, fair to say? Well, some people would like to believe that. Some days, it yet more than others. Okay, so semi can be, covers a wide range. It does, yes. doesn't it? it 1% biographical yeah. is semi-biographical. Don't sue me, is, exactly. is a bit on <laughs> the synopsis of the book, or the blurb. 28-year-old Katie Cook lands her dream job in the world of professional tennis. It was like being invited to the Academy Awards, except they were all wearing branded tracksuits. Katie finds life in Sydney to be not quite measuring up and makes the move to follow her child obsession with professional tennis, running away to join the circus of a world and finding work as a publicist. Racing around the globe faster than a Kentucky tour, creating internet scandals wherever she goes, Katie is seduced by the appearance of glamour and her weakness for bad boys. She falls for one of the troubled champions and starts a trending relationship with an arch enemy placing sh- social media bombs in her way and hashtags haunting Katie in her sleep. She navigates her way through a series of social media and love crises. Katie has some decisions to make. Does she want a hero or a career? Will she end up happily ever after? What does that even mean? One thing is for sure, she'll never schedule an Instagram post again. Hashtag girls can be heroes too. The story is written by a tennis insider and has been described as the devil wears Prada meets the exciting world of professional tennis. Thank you for blending these things together. I'm excited. I'm, I'm curious if you could just give us a bit of bio on yourself. Yes, Your time absolutely. in tennis, how you got into the sport before being in it professionally and then once you've made it your your job yeah i suppose i was always obsessed with tennis as a young girl i had a very large crush on john mcenroe ah uh, yeah. there's bad, so bad boy right boys. away okay exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. the first drafts of the book which were much more autobiographical had him in it um but he got ripped out for the not don't sue aspect of the <laughs> game Fine. There you go. Do you still have that first draft? And can, oh, you know, I do, I do. The, the right amount of money. Hey, there we go, there we go. That <laughs> will cover the lawsuits. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. At one point, I probably will do an actual autobiography <laughs> rather than a thinly veiled yes. attempt at it. Um, so, yeah, so the book sort of, uh, my, my career started in 96 really in tennis, but before that, obviously, love, in, love with John McEnroe. I thought every, tennis was wonderful. So I was doing real-world jobs. I had a degree in marketing, was doing some marketing jobs, you know, like a bit unfulfilled, a bit like this is really boring. I hope I don't spend 50 more years doing this crap. <laughs> and uh, then was up one night watching Wimbledon and with the Australian time zone. That means, you know, middle of the night watching, watching yeah. love. And I thought, I'm not interested in anything. Actually, I'm interested in this. But this can't be a real job. You can't really work in tennis for a job, surely. I'm sure you guys have had that same thought, <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. that real job. And then I saw, I um, started talking to people and following and looking and trying to see who was the who and who and what who to contact and stuff and got a, um, a job as an assistant at the Sydney tournament when it was the Peters International, which was really just about eating ice cream, I think. That was all it was about, Peters ice cream. So you, but you started working on the tour then as a, as a communications that official. was just working for a tournament, and I right. did a little bit of that, and then eventually got my way and got offered a job with WTA. I started that at the beginning of this century, yeah. 2000. Um, new millennia, new job, new career, new life, all mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. Does that sound starry enough? <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and I remember saying to a bunch of people who'd been working on the tour for ages, I'm like, oh my God, you're in like in five-star hotels and you're going to have like room service. And like... Why, how could anyone ever get sick of this? And they were like, just wait. I'm like, oh, you boys are weird. How could you get sick of this? 
and then I found out. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's true. It, it is a nonstop sort of hamster yeah. wheel type situation it a lot is. of times. Groundhog on Day, tour. I very fancy. It. Yeah, exactly. Groundhog yeah. Day. Groundhog yeah. Day traveling circus, right? Yes. You go and you sit. You go to. You, it's such a weird rhythm, right? Because I travel with the tour and pretty much tour of full, a fairly full schedule. And yeah, like from the outside in, everybody's like, how could you not love this? Uh, I mean, you get to watch tennis all day. You get to stay at the Hilton here, the Marriott there, the Intercontinental here, the Four Seasons in St. Petersburg, okay. you get private cars, yep. you get fed. All and great. it's all true, it, isn't it? It's all true. That, yep. That's not that's not, not true. Yeah. But I'm curious to see yeah. for you, when did it kind of start to turn to be like, yeah, I mean, this is still a job, though. I remember sitting in an airport on a way to Dubai, and that was it was well past 10 years into my time traveling full-time with the WTA. And being an Australian, there's a lot more distance. I had to give yeah. up living in Australia. It was yeah. too far. You know, you'd have two weeks off, and they'd say, go home. And I'm like, kill me now. I'm not going home. So I'll spend 10 days of it, you know, trying to get over the jet lag, and then I have to come back. And I remember sitting in an airport and wanting to cry because I was like, I didn't want to get on the plane. And then I knew. And then I knew. And then strangely enough, a couple of years later, I had the brand manager job for the ATP where they promised me I would do minimal travel. <laughs> what a lie that was. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just, we haven't not, we've had a lot of people in tennis, in various tennis roles on the podcast. We've done over 300 episodes at this point. I am, we mine's th- the best so far. So far. Well, we'll, see, we'll keep going at that. We have not ever had, I think, a communications Prof, uh, officer of the tour Woo. here so i am curious to, for a I, reason. I, yeah, it's probably well, not legal is it well, well i'm curious i'm sure there's no nda you're still bound by so yeah. feel free to spill anything and everything you want here right, right. but i am curious like what that job entails communications officials are people that i as a reporter deal with the most on yeah, tour absolutely. Uh, can you just explain what that what that job entails yeah so someone who doesn't know basically you're the meat in the sandwich so um <laughs> media ask you and sponsors ask you and tournaments ask you to do players to get players to do things then you go to the players their agents their entourage the person who wipes their bottom and <laughs> beg and pitch and cajole and convince horse and trade. then go back to yes, yeah, exactly horse, horse trade. Or if you don't if you do this this week, I won't ask you to do that next week. And then next week you go back to them and go, You know how I said I won't ask you to do this <laughs> next week? I lied and I know you hate me, but could you just? And that's basically it, that treadmill of like the meat in the sandwich, like that person or you and then you have to go back to the media and say, Um, she said she'd do it tomorrow and you know in your head and they know in your that you're lying and you're not trying to lie. You're hoping that tomorrow you'll be able to convince them to do it, but you know they're not going to do it. <laughs> it's a polite decline. Yes. It's, it's a, a polite decline. It's a soft Thank you no. For, it's a soft no, but just so, just ask again tomorrow. I mean, I've been obviously on both sides of it. I yes. was a journalist and, and dealing with WTA and ATP comms, and then now obviously I'm technically part of the communications department at the WTA, so I get, I've seen both sides of it, and it's, it's I have nothing but respect for comms managers because I just don't think that job is easy at all. You're in the midst of it all. Like you have to, everyone's You're the mad messenger. at you. Yeah, everyone's mad yeah. at you, and you and, keep and, getting shot. Yeah, and and you get you know you're 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 running around and you're 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 chasing after, you know, fifteen year olds, eighteen yeah. year olds, thirty eight year olds, thirty nine year olds, yeah. forty five year olds, whoever, yeah. and trying to deliver. And at the end of the day, you're trying to make everybody happy. You're trying to sell mm. the tour. You're trying to sell the tournament. You're trying to sell the player. You're trying to do all these sorts of things. It's it's, it's yeah. and they don't always get that they don't want to be sold sometimes well sometimes you come walking down the hallway Mm. like a comms manager comes walking down the hallway and players just start what now running the other way and that really hurts your feelings i once had emily moresmo bless her heart love it to death first tournament of the year in sydney that i was going to see her i was walking towards in the hallway and all i wanted to do was give her a hug and say happy new year emily and i sort of turned i sort of go and turn the corner and run Yeah. And I ran after her and I said, you dare, you dare do that. And she goes, what are you going to ask me to do? I said, I just wanted to say Happy New Year. And she goes, and? 
I said, well, <laughs> there's kind of visit. there's kind of a coaching clinic, and like, and she's like, God, and that was it. Go. but with a French accent, so it sounded nice. Mon God, yeah, exactly. You were coming on tour at the time when I sort of fell in love with tennis. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, turn of the last the glory century, days basically. Glory days, a lot of days when you had all these big stars still around. The Williams sisters coming up, uh-huh. Capriati, Davenport. Anna Kornikova was a big media figure on tour back yes, then. Yes, I worked a lot with Anna Kornikova. I'm, curi- I'm, I'm just curious. I'm just curious if, you, if, you, if I can just sort excited. of have stories about each of them. I'm curious. The William, let's start with the Williams sisters. They're mentioned first in your sort of author bio, as yeah, you worked yeah, with. Yeah. What were what was the phenomenon of working with them in particular like? Oh, it was always amazing because you know the energy surrounding them and their family was enormous, and yeah. you know they're they were taught to be positive people. And, you know, initially sometimes that came across as being extraordinarily arrogant, and it was, Mm -hmm. but at the same time it came from this place of we have to create this aura of unbeatability and that's how we'll be unbeatable. And it worked. Let's face it, it worked. It's it's gone, but it worked. I saw them in an interview they did here in 1998 when they played in the second round when Serena was unseated. I think Venus was unseated too, actually, in that tournament. They played each other second round. And they were talking about, they said after the inter, you know, post-match interview, they were like, well, you know, we'll just have to be number one and number two in the world as we play each other in the final. Yeah. Preposterous thing to say. And it came true very quickly. Yeah. Also, I mean, within like three years that they were in their first Grand Slam final together and had already both won Grand Slams by then. So and they, then everyone gave them hell about that. Like, are you really playing each other or you're not really playing? Well, kind yeah. of like, I mean, give them a break. You wanted them to do this. They've yeah. done it. You know, so I look, I have so much respect for both of them. I adore them and I had lots of fun working with them on the tour and, you know, Venus will still be 16 inches taller than me <laughs> and uh, used to, and always has worked with her, let's say, her eye line very high and I, and I was just saying to a couple of current comms managers, she just walked past me on the practice courts and I said, in the old days, I used to just go, hey, Venus, look down. <laughs> it was the only way to get her to look at me. What did you see in terms of, like, the, the media processing the Williams phenomenon, both both domestically in the U.S. to the extent you were there, and then internationally too, because I think they were seen as such outsiders and then quickly became the rulers. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone knew where to place them because there was nothing in sport ever, yeah. has ever been, and there never will be anything yeah. like them again. I mean, they, you know, they t- and they took turns at number one. That was the reality of it, wasn't it? It was kind of like handballing number one to each other <laughs> yeah. for a bit, and obviously Serena took it and really ran with it pretty severely, and... Um, I've got to say, just personally, I really, really wanted to beat Margaret Cork's record. Anyway, just yep. saying that. Um, I know this has been a setback for this tournament, but come on, Serena, please do it for <laughs> us because we really want to stop talking about that record. It's the official and official position of the NCR podcast. Yeah, exactly. yeah we, okay. We, we, want, we want Serena to get 24 and 25. Yeah, for yeah. Sure. I want it for her. I also yeah. want it to, for Even the other 24. reason. Even just 24. 24 yeah. is already. 24. 25, I'm less worried about. Yeah. 24, the tie will go to Serena. Yeah, in every absolutely. Way. Yeah. Because everyone will forget about what's known. Exactly. Well, yeah. who, I don't even know who we're talking about I don't anymore. I don't know. We've got to get a big texter for the stadium. Anyway, scratch it. All right. But also just. <laughs> different, in, different conversation. But also just in Sorry. No, no. You're good. You're good. Track. But I'm just wondering, in general, that time in the tour yep. was really dominated by teenagers, especially. Yes, the Williams was. sisters were both yep. in their late yep. teens. Yep. Uh, Martina Hingis had won three Hingis. you know, Grand Slams at 16 and yes. two more at, by the time she was 18 and yep. stopped. Yep. Kornikova was also a teenager. Yep. What was it like? Did you feel like uh, a babysitter back then? Or what was it like dealing with, with you know, minors? Because it's constantly? different yeah. now. It's, it's different. We don't really have that as much. No, right? you don't. You're right. Now. You're right. You're right. It is different. Uh, it was different from what it is now. Um, it was weird. I mean, obviously, I was I was a lot younger then too, so I was closer to the age, so the age gap wasn't as apparent as it was towards the end of my working full time. At yeah. the beginning, I was sort of, you know, late 20s, so that's a bit different to being 
35, 40 working with yeah. teenagers. But there is a sense of, you know, it, it was what the strangeness is, is they come across as being quite old and quite worldly in some circumstances. And then you'll ask them a certain question or you'll see them in a certain circumstance and, oh, that person's 16, that person's 17. And one of them's the freebies. So, you know, obviously the Williams and obviously Kornikova and obviously Hingis are not poor. Yeah. And weren't, I know the Williams started out fairly, you know, cash strapped as a family and whatever, but by the time I knew them, not poor. Yeah. But not just them, Kornikova, who was having made a lot of money and has made, did very well considering she didn't win a Grand Slam, other than in doubles. Yeah. Or any, or any, or any WTA title in singles. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but she was a really good player. Oh, she yeah. just was hot, too hyped up for her own good. And she was lovely on occasion. Rare occasion. Okay. Yeah. I will follow up I think, on that. I think, I, think, I think she was a good person when it suited her. Um, and a real nightmare sometimes, but God love her. Okay, so... Let, let, there, that's the truth. But the, the reality was you'd see them taking the freebies. Yeah. And that was when you knew that these guys are desperate. I think tennis players are always just still kind of... Desperate for a freebie. ...cheap, for lack of a better word. So cheap. Well, yeah. Because, because free meals is a weird thing. free meals thing. is a thing. I mean, here at the Australian Open, oh. when they had it where there was unlimited food for the players, I think, a couple of years ago, oh. it ended up being an absolute... Disaster. Yeah. It's like a cruise Functional ship. disaster. Yeah, it's like a cruise ship yeah. where they were just kind of taking everything. And one of the things that always cracks me up is sometimes at tournaments I'll see, you know, players or coaches taking, uh, you know, pallets of mm. bottled water, mm. you know, back to the hotel. And I'm like, I get it. You need the water. But there's also a grocery store just right next to the hotel. Yeah. Like, really? You can't just, like, you know, for me, I was like, we all see how much like, money you're making like, this week. Well, yeah. Yeah. for me, I'm like, that's just a pain in the butt to carry. Like, just go to the grocery store and buy it you know, or, like, they're whatever. desperate for the free yeah, stuff. but it's like, like oh, you would this, see, that. You see top players, and I'm not going to mention any names, sure. but some of them could start with the letter F and some of them could start with the letter N and you say, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Male. Schmetter or yeah. Yeah. all. Exactly. And and their entourages and their friends and their hangers-on all eating in the player restaurant on the night they're not playing. And you think... Wouldn't you like to go out to a nice restaurant? I know you have to pay for it, but wouldn't you like to? I'd like to. I'd I'm pay for it. To. I'm dying I'd to not eat for on it. site. Yeah, because, the, you know, most tournaments, the food, I mean, it's pretty good. And most of the tournaments, the food's pretty good, let's yes. face it. But it's also the same meals yes. pretty much every night. Now, after six or seven nights, and some of these top players are obviously are there for six or seven nights, yeah. I mean... You got the night off. Wouldn't you like to go somewhere I mean, else? Well, the funny thing about that is, as, as a former comms manager, you would probably relate to this, is that we were just talking now, like me and the, the social team, and they're like, they were, they're like, oh, we're going to this restaurant, you know, tonight, and they're showing me the menu, and they're so excited. Like, we don't actually want to partake, of, weirdly, despite getting paid peanuts, but like, we don't actually want to partake in like on-site stuff. Like, if I can leave and I can go eat anything else I will I'm happy to do it and I'm not complaining about the food but it's just the same thing yeah over. it's a repetitiveness of from the, from week to week it's always pasta yep. it's always some sort of uh, chicken situation and yes. some sort of fish situation and a, a salad that doesn't really go together but I guess that's technically a salad some yeah. dubious sushi some dubious sushi yeah. always you just never know well you're you're lucky now because there's a lot more variety than there was in I'm my sure day sushi, sushi was a very rare yeah, event yeah. except if you were in Japan <laughs> when it was not a very rare event yeah. And would have been nice to have been after a while, I, you know. Yeah, no, for sure. Okay, back to Kornikova. <laughs> yeah, yeah, what yeah. Was, what, 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 what were the dreams? What were the nightmares? Oh, God, so many nightmares. So few <laughs> dreams. <laughs> That's the next book. There you go. <laughs> That's okay. your title of the next book. Okay, let's start. Well, let's just set up for people who don't. We've we, we, we talked about Kornikova a bit on the show before, but just yeah. to, for someone who was there, 
living this experience. Kornikova mm. was the highest paid female athlete in the world mm. at the time, mm. despite never, as you said, winning a Grand Slam singles mm. title or even a WTA title. She was a top 10 player mm. at times. I think yeah. she peaked at number eight. Yep. So she was a great player. She was. But at the same time, I'm sure a lot of other players resented the attention mm. she got mm-hmm. and the money she made. Mm. Um, and I'm curious what she was like to, to do. And she was also, from all accounts I've heard, quite a, uh, she a chucked, diva. She chucked a lot of tanties. Yeah, a lot of tanties. Chucked a lot of tanties. That's a good Aussie. That's a very Aussie expression. Yeah, Chucked behind the scenes, a lot of tanties. I got told anything and everything. I remember the end of a tournament in Japan. I had to get, and I was really annoyed because it's one of those things where you normally get told through what you, what people what other ones signed for the tournaments early on, and so you know after a player wins a match, you get them to sign a couple of balls. You get them to sign things progressively, yeah, so that when they've lost, you don't have to go up to them and say, "Could you sign 20? programs or whatever it might be anyway i got i'd been doing it all week all the signatures i'm very proud of myself i'd managed to finagle things out of, even out of cornicover and she didn't like to sign things um i don't know why it's very t- complex the a and the k maybe <laughs> i don't know anyway on this particular thing i got sent just before the finals um and she was in the doubles not the singles the final doubles final that she was in um could you get her to sign five tennis balls or something like that anyway so I went up to her after the match, and it had been a tough match, but they won, and they had the ceremony, and they had all that sort of time to calm down from the tough match or whatever. I said, Anna, can you sign these three balls? No. Not going to do it. Absolutely not going to do it. So I had to get them signed. So I waited a little bit, and, and then um, her doubles partner at the time, Tuliganova, Rhoda Tuliganova, oh, yeah, who's Rhoda a lovely Tuliganova, girl, yeah. lovely girl, she came in and I said, listen, Rhoda, can you just take these balls to Anna and just say, just can you sign the balls? Yeah? I thought if it comes from a doubles partner, you know, that it might come out a little bit better and she can do it out of the way and whatever. Anyway, a couple of minutes later, and I'm in the tournament office with a few tournament officials, She Anna comes into the room and threw the balls at me. Oh, wow. I told you no and said a few words that are not publishable or podcastable. We have no censoring on this podcast <laughs> if you want to be specific, but you don't yeah, need to be no, either. I can't even remember, but I know that they were filthy and wharfy-like. <laughs> Do you use the word wolfie? I don't, what is someone who works on the, we say, on oh, works like on the wall. Oh, like, like a sailor. sailor. Yeah, like a sailor. sailor. Okay, Person yeah. like a sailor, yeah. So he made a blade sailor blush sort of thing. <laughs> and I'm just standing there just going, I said, just just sign the balls, Anna, for God's sake. Yeah, I told you no. And all the language in the world. And off she went and didn't sign the balls. What was so hard about signing balls? Did no, you ever, I, no? I have never been able to imagine that. But I signed them. For as an AK? Yeah. <laughs> <I did>. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So someone in Japan's got side balls that are not from Anna Kornikova. I hope you made a lot of money off them. I hope they did too. That's tremendous. Um, that was not a regular thing no. to have to sign balls. Most of the stuff, that, all of the stuff other than three balls from Anna Kornikova, I would say, are signed by the legitimate people. Yeah. I don't want to get into trouble now, <laughs> but I definitely signed three balls in Tokyo that day. There was this sense back in reading Venus Envy, the book that John Worthen yes. wrote about the 2000 WTA yes. season, which is one of my favorite tennis books ever. It was a lot about kind of the... For lack of a better word, like cattiness of the of the players at the time, a lot of a lot of really more intense rivalries, a lot yeah. more trash talking yep. between top players that we don't see in men's tennis anymore. I'm looking at Nick Kyrgios on the screen; he yeah. still does it. He but likes a trash. Oh talk, yeah, but he? but women's tennis has had considerably less of that lately. Yep. Do you feel like you'd be a peacekeeper ever between them? Were the actual what were the actual sort of rivalries or animosities like back then between, let's say, Williamses and Hingis, Williamses and Kornikova? I don't know. They were there. They were absolutely there. I'm not going to deny they were there. But we really didn't get involved in it. And they didn't try and drag us into it very much. Yeah. And I never really saw staunches or anything like that in the um, locker rooms or anything like that. And I don't really think that happened. I think there were just, I really don't like that person. Yeah. And, you More know. More resentment than yeah, fight, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, you know, obviously Hingis didn't like the Williams. There was no secret about that. She didn't, she wasn't very secretive about it. She was very, she was, she 
I think it was that, you know, they were young people usurping her young people role. I don't think it was any, I mean, people will talk about racism. I didn't think, I didn't see that in her at all. I just saw just, real rivals competing rivalry. for the same titles. Yeah. yeah, and that's all I saw it was. She got particularly upset when she lost matches to them. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I just think that was a sports rivalry and that's all I ever saw. I never saw any arguments between any of them or any of that. But, you know, you saw, you could see on court, you all saw on court, people saw on court how much more sometimes they were re- yeah. wanting to win than other times they wanted to win, you yeah. know? They got really serious about it. And I mean, obviously, they're always serious about winning, but sometimes they were like, oh, crap, well, I'm not going to lose to this B-I-T-C-H or whatever yeah. it is. You, well, you've you certainly seen that from Maria, from, with Maria Sharapova and Serena Williams. I mean, Serena's been yeah. determined never to let Serena, uh, Sharapova beat her again. Yeah. yeah so and it's, she it's certainly thing. kept that happening. <laughs> yeah, so she, she has. I, by, I, by the way, love Maria Sharapova. I would, okay. knew her from when she was 15, and I helped her right at the beginning with all her media training and everything. So um, that's my big disclaimer. So you're not going to get anything negative no, about I'm, Maria out I'm not of trying me. to look for negative love, for anybody. I'm her. just trying to get your, your truth. Yeah, that's, and that well, is so true. What was, I never what was Maria like when she first started out? She was wonderful. Yeah? She was wonderful. She really wanted to try. She really wanted to learn. She really wanted friends. But, you know, she had been isolated from... As such a young child. I mean, she was stuck in volunteers as a kid and in, you know, at seven and eight in dorms with 15 year old yeah. girls who hated her. Yeah. You know, she was better than them at seven than they were at 15 and they were trying to, you know, get on the tour and they were never going to get on the tour. And she was, you know, clearly going to be it. Yeah. You know, and they hated her. So she had all of that and didn't see her family for weeks on end and didn't see her mother for years on end. And yeah. she had all of that. And that's just not normal, you know. And yeah. she, she fought her way through all of that. And, you could see she was just trying to find where she was supposed to be and she wanted to make everybody else happy and she needed to win. Say that as yeah. gently as I can, she needed to win. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I'm curious because you mentioned something that I've always been like fascinated by and, and um, is what happens uh, after losses for, for comms managers. Oh, yeah. I, I've always like just, I, I don't have much insight in that because I don't go yeah. into the locker room it's and I stay away loser, from it. But approaching a loser... And having to, yeah, manage that process, mm-hmm. especially obviously some matches mean more than others and mm-hmm. the reaction is very different. And, you know, probably 90%, I assume, maybe that's too high. I don't know. You can correct me. Of those interactions are kind of normal. They're pros. They know they need to do X, Y, Z, and they know that the comms manager is going to be tracking them down. But there's probably going to be that 10%, 15% where it's it, it takes a little bit more of... Yeah, problem solving, people skill, yeah. I don't know, to kind of read the situation and, and understand what to do. It's about relationships, like any good, you know, um, any good role that you do or any job you do well, it's built building relationships. It's about knowing, and we would know this match they really want to win. This is, this is you know, the Grand Slam this finals and obvious, or this one's sensitive because they're not particularly thrilled about losing to this person, or you can tell that they've had a bad week and they really didn't need that because we're with them all the time. So... It was about having that relationship. It was also knowing very much when not to walk in. I was forced with Hingis after she lost to Venus at the US Open in a huge match to walk onto Arthur Ashe and, and US TV were telling me that they wanted me to ask Hingis to do an on-court interview after she'd lost the match. Now, I knew Ooh, she no. was going to punch me in the face if I did it. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I said to him, I can't ask her. And he said, you have to because I've been told you have to ask her. So I just walked up to her and I just... And she knew me well enough and she just looked at me and she just went... Because she knew what I was going to ask. She knew, sorry, yes, shaking my head, yes, radio, that's right, not TV. (laughs) She knew what I was going to ask and I didn't even have to ask a question. And I knew that was going to be her response, but I needed them to see her response. 
So the shake of the head was all that they needed to know that that was where all it was going to go. Asking someone to lose, to say encore interview after yeah. losing a Grand Slam semi, I think it was, to be in 2000. Yeah, it was. And it was a big deal. That's a weird ask. I, I, I don't know why they would try weird. to ask Broad, that. Yeah. You know, broadcast. They, yeah. They're, they're Desperation. ballsy. Broadcast, broadcast. Uh, it was Patrick McEnroe, oh. just in case anyone wants to know okay. who it was. There we go. He wasn't the one who was asking me. He was, sure. you know, it was in his ear coming down, and I'm like, I can't, I can't, I can't. And he's like, you have to. And I'm like. Because, <laughs> you know, I mean, she's quite well known for having punched someone at the French Open that time. She did the runner off the court in the finals she when she lost. Someone? She punched one of the comms managers. I can't say who it was, but she I didn't know she her. punched. I had not heard it's that. It's quite well known. <laughs> it's quite well known. You heard oh, well. that? Yeah, yeah. This is a Tessie Graf loss, right? Yeah. Yeah, and then she never won another Grand Slam again. Yeah. Moral of the story, don't punch comms managers. Yeah, exactly, exactly. If and that's the one thing anybody is taking away from this. Yeah, don't punch fully, comms managers. Fully endorse this. Exactly. So that's when I and I obviously knew that, and this was obviously post that, and I'm looking at her thinking, oh, I'm going to get punched on TV and blah, 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 the Ash Stadium. And if you've ever walked on after Ash Stadium, it's one of the scariest mm. stadiums to walk on at that energy and it's that so heat. so cavernous and loud, And yeah. it's because it was nighttime, and it's so they're drunk and... Yeah. happy and excited and it's really gladiatorial and I, and I remember just thinking oh god kill me I'm gonna get punched <laughs> but I wasn't yeah. I just got a shake of the head you, and then was, I had to follow her and had to get her to do press and everything sure. and you know I had to wait for her to finish crying and yeah. you know, all that sort of stuff and that's one of the things you did learn knowing when to leave them alone and when to wait 20 minutes and just stand and often it would be you, they'd had a bad loss all they had to do was see you and I'm sure it's still the same they'd see you and they'd just look at you and they'd just go like that just nod slightly it's, most infinitesimal um, nod that just meant, I've seen you, piss off. Yeah. <laughs> but they're going to do it. Yeah. They're going to do it. They know that 99.9999% players did it no matter what. There was a few runners. You know, I've, I've gone back to hotels and gotten people out of rooms and dragged oh, people wow. back. But it was very, very rare, I have to say. Yeah. I know the men have had a few um, not coming to press moments and... Couple. Sir, who's on court now, Kyrgios yeah. has certainly uh, well, copped had, a couple of fines for that. Uh, he actually shows up and then probably people this, are Wish he'd sh- gone. Yeah. yeah. Does, does this go back to our discussion earlier about kind of how, you know, taking waters and taking freebies and things like this? Because I've always been absolutely stunned by the idea that players don't bail on press more often. I don't think the fine is that. I agree the fine with you. Is that I, I agree. I'm always really surprised that the yeah. players... Like, the stick it, is not that big, is it? It's not. No. And, but I, I know that a lot of times comms managers, when the, a player is not into it, they do kind of like, you know, this is what the fine is if yeah. you want to go. And then the player's like, oh, fine. And then I'm like, I'll it's overhear not ju- it. And I'm like, it's not that much money. It's not just the fine. If you talk, what you do is you have to talk them through the fact that there are repercussions beyond a fine. There's, you're going to look like crap. Yeah. This is not going to look good for you to not come to press. But there's other things too. Like if you, and, and at top players are very good at, in 99% of cases, yes. recouping themselves and getting themselves after being very upset into a, you know, okay position. Less well-known players who are less mm. comfortable and less regular at press often struggle a lot more with getting themselves together after players a Players almost loss. never have to do post-loss press. Exactly. I remember this, this happened sometimes. She wasn't particularly bad at it, but it's one that comes to mind. It's like when Danielle Collins made the semifinals here last year as a surprise semifinalist, she had to do press after she left the semifinals. And I don't think she had ever done press after a loss in yeah. her life. And it was just sort of like she just seemed like uncomfortable with it. It was like, yeah. it was like oh, you're doing the post-loss press. It's something you have to learn that skill. Yeah, it yeah. is. Yeah. Because you have to you have to learn the professionalism of that moment mm. you have to learn that like nobody here is necessarily it's not personal they have to ask the questions yeah. that they need to ask about what went wrong 
that's how it yeah. is. But and imagine you, being 15 know, and, you know, 20 minutes, half an hour after losing something. And if they don't care, then there's something really, really wrong. Right. They should care, right? They should be upset. They should be destroyed or semi, particularly in a Grand Slam or particularly in a big tournament. They should be really upset if they lose, yeah? So if they're not upset, you have to ask yourself more questions about why they're not upset, yeah. particularly when players blow it off and they sort of like, oh, yeah, it doesn't matter or whatever. Yeah. Then you think there's something more wrong with that yeah. because that's probably what you're going to do on court and then there's mm. bigger repercussions to that. Yeah. And we learn to give them sometimes more time. Like I've said to players that said they were ready to come to press after a loss, no, you're not. Mm. They're like, I want to go now. I want to go now. And I'm like, no, yeah. I'm not taking you. I mean, you're not ready to go. No, there are some players you see show up to press still wearing their match outfits, still like, you yeah. know, in their, even like their headbands or whatever. They clearly yeah. have not done anything to sort of reset yep. from this match loss. And yeah, those are not, those can be sort of like revealingly raw press conferences. Yeah. They can also be very, very monosyllabic very, too, Yeah, very, very sort of just like too, they haven't processed things yet. So. Exactly. And it's hard because then in, in those situations, they become uh, potentially... Uh, unreliable narrators, right? Yes. Like you know, you're asking them what's happening. They haven't processed it. They're saying, yeah. they're saying words, but you're like, I don't think that you fully thought this all the way through. And then now, the press is going to take that and they're going to run your narrative, which yeah. hasn't been fully thought through. And you can't even be mad that they got it wrong because that's what you said. Like yeah. you know what I mean? That's sort of thing. But so that I I think is always it's 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 always a rough one. But yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. didn't Milman say last night about the tiebreak? He can't remember it. Yeah. Yeah. And, so, and it's a blur. See, yeah. And it would be. Yeah. yeah. You can imagine. You know, that's what was it? Four and a half hours, something yeah. like that. Yeah. You know, I know not as long longer matches than that, but obviously he put everything into that, and he really probably should have won it. But that's what champions are about. Like yep. Federer is for who he is. But, you know, I read that and I just, and he said, I'm not trying to stonewall you, mate. I actually really don't remember. Remember it. what Federer said to me at the net? He was just like, that's a blur. Yeah. yeah. Don't I know. And then you think, yeah, that's, and that, but probably if you ask him today, he'd remember. Yeah. So one thing that this era also of WTA, especially around like 2000, was known for was a lot of famous and infamous tennis parents. And I'm curious whether it was Richard Williams, the Hingis mother, the Capriati's father, Mary Pierce's father. Elena Dokic's father on the more extreme end of that scale. Uh, what dealing with, and even just day to day, the less you know, infamous parents just having when their players are this young, having the parents there. What was that like navigating these, these families that were often very hands on and very present on tour? It was extremely extremely complex because often you'd get the player to agree to something, and then all of a sudden, what well, they weren't doing it, and it was because a parent had stepped in and decided actually you're not doing that, and the parents. In a lot of those cases you mentioned were out for an extra buck or two and trying to work out how they could get the agent to do, get the kid to do the same thing for more money or Mm -hmm. something like that. And, you know, deals had been done with the tournaments. And the tournaments always, as I said, put us in the middle. So they might have had a signed contract that said so-and-so was going to do blah, blah and blah. And all of a sudden so-and-so wasn't going to do blah, blah and blah and can we get them to do it? And we're like, well, the contract isn't with us. If you've got a contract that's not even, in a lot of cases, you know, our rules, outside of our yeah. rules, because a long time ago, you know, WTA didn't, you couldn't play appearance fees and whatever. Clearly they were doing that sort of stuff. Yep. Don't want to sue. Um, and we know. we know. Everyone knows. And you'd be asked to enforce a contract that was illegal. I'm like, well, how, how the hell do you want me to do that? I can't enforce that. Yeah. So, you know, and it was parents getting in the way. And just how fraud is that, I guess, when it's a family dynamic that you're sort of stepping into oh, part of your job? Yeah. You know, you mentioned Capriati. I mean, I had one tournament in, uh, in Dubai where I had both parents on site and they were not friends. So oh, with each other. With yeah. each other, um, exactly. It was very acrimonious and, you know, so I'm going to Capriati and get one answer, then mum, another answer, then dad, another answer. And if one felt marginalised by the other, they were going to cause trouble for the sake of causing trouble. So, you know, just to get, like, 
an autograph session done was like you know, running around like a, a lunatic trying to get yeses, all three yeses and, and placating all three egos and saying, you know, that's a really good point you've made about blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and, you know, what you really wanted to say is, oh, just shut up and say yes, for Christ's sake, you know, you, whatever. Because your whole job is sort of just like negotiation constantly, yes. compromise. Yeah. yeah, I know. I should have made a fortune in some sort of, you know, selling thing, shouldn't or I? hostage of, release or something. Exactly, yeah. a hostage release. I don't think they make sure. a fortune out of that, no. do they? Probably Very grateful not. people, though. Yeah, great. Well, they are more grateful than players and families, probably. Kidnap and ransom. <laughs> Kidnap and ransom is a very lucrative... You know, then you should be a negotiator on those. Okay, yeah, that sounds iffy. I think that sounds more like to get shot than even on the tour. <laughs> you switched, stopped working with WT at some point, went to start working for ATP. Yeah, there was a gap between. Yeah. Not a huge gap. I sort of started working back and then I did a little bit of consulting for the WTA, like just going and working certain tournaments mm-hmm. and that sort of stuff. And then a job came up and a friend of mine at the ATP said, you know, we're looking for marketing people to be based in offices, so like yeah. in the Sydney office. And I was like, oh, my God, that would be like winning the lottery <laughs> and doing some travel. And, um, you know, so that started out. And it's typical of both tours. Both tours do this thing where they hire people just to be in the office. And then after a year or two, they go, actually, we think you should go on the road a lot, yeah. you know. So it's like this catch-22. And So that's why you were tra- you were travelling way more than you thought that you would be. Yeah, and then they wanted me to do even way more again. Yeah, yeah. And I sat down with my partner and I'm like, it would it be all right if I said no to this? Yeah. And it was during the, um, the you know, Great financial crisis. Great's for the wrong word, isn't it? Yeah. The no GFC. Way, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I'm like, would it be all right if I resigned from my job right in the middle of this? And she's like, it wouldn't be great, would it? And I'm like, no, <laughs> it, would, it wouldn't be terrific, but I think I really need to. Yeah. What what was it? The, what are the differences between working for ATP versus WTA? As just sort of companies, as cultures, male players versus female players, but also just different corporate environments. It, it's different maybe. times too, in a, yeah. in a sense that and that mm, doesn't make like the, the WTA learned a lot from um, um, Adam Scott being part of them. I think they they got Larry it, Scott. You mean? Larry Scott. Yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah. sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm, I'm merging two other ones. Sure. I'm putting two <laughs> together. Sorry about that. I think they learned a lot from him um, in terms of he created the All Access Hour, which was incredibly important for the, the WTA because we were just going through a phase, I think, where the players had a little bit too much, the top players had a little bit too much power, probably post-Williams and, you know, all these big names like yeah. Davenport's, as you're saying, and Bornicova and stuff, and they were very agent, all very agented up and very hard to access for the media, and um, Larry was very good at creating this All Access Hour, and it, it sort of sort of put the lid on the, no, we're not going to do it. So there were certain things they had to do, and we, you know, the tournaments got a decent yeah. amount of access to these ridiculously high-level players but who had all been given buys in most tournaments, yeah? yeah? And it's kind of like that because originally the buys were created so the players would do publicity, right? Mm. Then they just stopped turning up on the days when they weren't playing. Like they wouldn't they would fly in. Late. They would fly late. in two yeah. or three days late yeah. and then it just got out of control and then he put the lid on that. And that the WTA got a lot of power of that. They also, he signed a lot of sponsors. Money makes the world go round, yeah. If you've got money to pay people and you've got money to get good people, then you can have a more professional tour. And I think that was the start of the WTA being able to really, um, you know, be, be cashed up. Yeah. You know, and obviously the big names in the women's tennis helped the sponsors and it sort of, you know, fed itself. But, you know, I mean, I'm passionate about tennis. I'm passionate about WTA because I'm a woman and seeing a woman's sport that is – Equal in publicity pretty much to a man's sport is an yeah. astonishing thing, you know. So yeah. that's why I'm, I'm close to that. But the ATP, you know, uh, the ATP Cup, I was just at it in Sydney. Mm-hmm. I went along to it. Wow, they did a great job on that. Yeah. I'm just curious, I was curious to ask about that just in terms of the time you were there because you were there during 
kind of this like golden era for the popularity of women's tennis when women's tennis became yes started in becoming states. in the states especially but maybe i think it was also probably well, a lot of american champions yeah, exactly american champions and it expanded it got you know bigger attention than ever the women were selling comparable to men getting better tv ratings for probably the first time consistently yep. for a while they started working towards equal prize money at the grand slams which yes. finally came in 2007 so what was your i guess your satisfaction as being part of that operation that part of that mission part of that machine to get those sort of breakthroughs for women's tennis which have for the most part, been able to stabilize and certainly Grand Slam equal prize money has stayed put mm-hmm. ever since. Yeah, I mean, look, I think it was it was extraordinary, honestly. It was a wonderfully proud thing. And, and the WTA is full of very passionate men and women, but obviously it's they've got more women than most organisations and more women at high levels than most organisations. Sports, yeah, for sure. In sports, yeah. absolutely. And women who've been part of it since the get-go. And I was there at the time when they bought... Billie Jean King back in. She'd sort of been, you know, she's running world team tennis and doing wonderful things all over the place, entrepreneurial things all over the place. And they, she sort of had been, I don't want to say separated from the WTA, but not not day-to-day involved. And she started coming back and making speeches to the players and stuff to try and get the younger ones to understand the legacy that they were part of. Yeah. Um, and that was always an extraordinary thing. I mean, you know, you always wanted to cry every time she walked into a room. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Still, I mean, it never exactly. gets old. It never gets it old doesn't. when Billy walks in. It doesn't. Yeah. And the young players need to know that because yeah. they need to know those dollar, those dollar notes, you know. They need to know about those dollar notes. I think that that's something that I wonder about with the current players too. And it just can, be, it can keep getting tougher with time probably. I mean, someone yeah. like, uh, let's pick a name. Well, uh, Coco Goff. Not Coco, saying Hannah. Right, Coco Goff, right. Well, Coco Goff would have been... Uh, gosh, let me do the math. She would have been, I think, about three Minus years old four. when Equal Prize Money arrived. Yeah. So for her, like, whole conscious, that's more or less, um, more or less her entire conscious life, there's been yeah. Equal Prize Money, and she yeah. could almost certainly take it for granted. Yeah. But it's what something is that I... struggle? Yeah. What, is, what is the fight, right, yeah. when you kind of come into a situation And I'm not at all saying this person that no, I th- no, no. think she's complacent. I don't but think it, she it, is it, at it, all. It's not even that. It's, it's, it's do, do the younger players know who the names on these stadiums, what is the significance? Okay, they see Rod Laver... Do they know who Rod? What exactly does Rod represent? What exactly does Arthur? I think Susan Longland tennis is better than many, many, many sports at that. You know, they bring older players and they do stuff on courts. Mm -hmm. You know, the WTA has done former number one legends. Mm -hmm. You know, I really think tennis is incredibly good, biased, 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 at um, at bringing the names of the past back and making them real and having them come into you know present trophies and all of that sort of stuff. Of course, a 15-year-old girl like Gogo is going to have a limited range of knowledge. How could you expect her not to? She's been hitting a million tennis balls a day, or why? Or how did she get as good as she did? And tennis's history is complicated and long. Like, yes. I mean, there's a lot. I mean, I yes. work in it, learn. and I need to know. And I, there's, she'll yeah, learn. exactly. She'll learn. But you got, yeah, they, everybody you got to give has her a chance. You know? Absolutely. 15. God, Absolutely. I mean, I didn't know. I don't want to tell you what I didn't know at 15. <laughs> it wasn't legal. <laughs> Goodness. Well, on that note. Um, can you just give one more plug for your book as we wrap up? Yes. What, I, pe- what people, hopefully now you've, you've spilled plenty of, of, of piping hot tea, as they say in these days, and, <laughs> and give people something to, to salivate over. Uh, okay. And your book, I assume, will be similarly fulfilling on the on the juice front. Thank you. Yes, I hope it will be. It is. It will be to everyone. Everyone who's read it so far has been like, oh, my God, I'll never schedule an Instagram post again. So there's lots of good um, <laughs> lots of good internet scandals in there, lots of good behind the scenes, lots of good feeling. Um, Katie Cook, our protagonist, likes to, as as we said, she got in a lot of trouble with a Russian tennis player, and that's always good to read about, Ooh, isn't it? Marat's in the book? 
Yeah, Amazing. He, he's not, but he, he actually is mentioned in passing because I didn't want you to think the main character was Marat. Um, <laughs> smart. But smart. Uh, the main character is good looking and I suppose you wouldn't say Marat wasn't, would you? He's, he's, no one would say that. No, no one, one would say, would say that. that. Literally no one would say that. Literally no one would say yeah. that. Um, even four-sighted people would, would have to <laughs> agree he's good looking. Um, but not quite 30 Love. Mostly you're going to have to get it on um, digital. Yeah. yeah by kin- search it on Kindle. Search it on iBooks. Um Go to my website, not quite thirty love. Plug, 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 plug. Yeah, um, <laughs> always awesome. We, which is what we, we appreciate the plug. And yeah, hopefully get a laugh, some laughs, and some fun, and a bit of an idea of what it's like to be a comms manager and a player. Because certainly we talk on, you know, it talks a lot about the life of a player as well. It's yeah. not just totally myopic comms, but it, it gives that focus of, you know, what it's like to work with these people, not just be these people. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sally, for being on the show. We really appreciate it. Uh, are you on social media generally or anything at this point? Yes, yeah. absolutely. I'm at Sally Bradfield on Twitter. Um, and, of course, there's Not Quite 30 Love um, website, um, Instagram, and Facebook. Tremendous. Well, we yeah. hope we encourage everyone to follow you there and check absolutely. out the book. And thank you for being on this episode of No Challenges Remaining. Thank you. It was a hoot. That's Australian for fun. <laughs> that one we have. That one we have. <laughs> so thank you very much to Sally Bradfield for coming on NCR with us and joining me and Courtney while we were in Melbourne, as you can maybe tell from the timing of that interview and and thank you to all of you for listening to ncr and for following us at our other places to find us on twitter at ncr underscore tennis you can also send us emails with questions comments episode requests thoughts anything no challenges remaining at gmail.com is our email address there We also want to thank the listeners who have supported us on Patreon since we last did an episode. Those people are Rose Krantz Baldwin, Emily Starracina, Andrew Eccles, The Body Serve Tennis Podcast, and Jermaine L. And since this is our first episode of the month of March, we're also going to give our monthly shout out to everyone at the on tour and above tier of being a Patreon patron. So those people include... Andrew Eccles, Brett Halsey, Brian Rolick, Dermot Harkin, Erica Jane Glamgoals, Ava Marshall-Kova, Greer Millard, Jeremy Blackstone, John Fisher, Kate S., Lori Porter, Roman Dwalv Wong, Stephanie Chow, and the Body Surf Tennis Podcast again. And as well as our backers at the higher levels in that, Chuang Nguyen, Jonathan Weinbaum, Liz Kennel, and Betty, as well as J-O-D. So thank you all for supporting NCR. If you want to join our support on Patreon and hear your name on the show, we'd love to have you. We are at patreon.com slash no challenges remaining is the URL to find us there. And we will be coming to you guys again soon from Indian Wells, where Courtney and I will reunite for the first time since Australia, hopefully record a whole bunch of shows there and have a good old time. Assuming the tournament goes on because who knows these days. Bye, guys. Communication is the key to life. Communication is the key to love. Communication is the key to us. There's over a thousand ways to communicate in our world today. And it's a shame that we don't connect.